Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In the day to day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And a compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. In 2005, American writer David Foster Wallace delivered an address to the graduating class of Kenyon College, Ohio. The speech, titled This is Water, is a timeless trove of wisdom in which Foster Wallace speaks about consciousness and worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. As Foster Wallace astutely points out, we all worship. Whether it's Instagram, work, your cat, your dog, your mother, yourself, sex, drugs, power, beauty or God, we're all in servitude to our unconscious motives. I think the kind of unconsciousness Foster Wallace is describing here particularly applies to sex. We're often fumbling around in the dark, literally and figuratively. If I asked you what you believed about your sexuality and why, how might you answer? And what motives do you think are driving your desires and beliefs? It might be to receive validation, to feel a sense of connection and belonging, or to reach something beyond yourself. I think being conscious about sexuality in this particular way is hard. It means acknowledging the parts of us that are insecure, needy, and incongruent with our imagined sense of self. But there's an enormous amount of humanity to be found here. It might seem odd, or even slightly conservative, to kick off the second season of The Philosophy of Sex with an episode about religion and sexuality. Many religions aren't exactly seen as beacons of sex positivity. However, I believe it's the perfect place to start. 
Today, you're going to hear from three religious leaders who've brought an enormous amount of consciousness into reconciling their beliefs and their sexualities. Rabbi Denise Eager was one of the first lesbian women to be ordained in the United States. Imam Moshim Hendricks is the founder of the first queer mosque on the African continent. And Minister Josephine Epkin is the first trans woman to work in a mainstream Australian church. These three religious leaders defy expectations of what it means to exist within their respective faiths and show how modern characterizations of religion and its relationship to sex can be more rich and complex than we might imagine. Reticence towards religion is not unwarranted. Religious institutions have been the seat of major sexual abuse scandals, and as today's guests point out, it's been used as a tool of oppression throughout history, particularly on matters of sex and sexuality. In spite of this, today's guests have made a conscious choice to take ownership of their beliefs about life's meaning and their sexuality. I think there is a beauty in this, that anyone who wants to live authentically can benefit from hearing about. For all three of our guests, through confronting what they worship, they've achieved a greater self-acceptance. And I find this very inspiring. Today, we're going to learn more about the various paths these three individuals took and how they navigated their environments to come to a place of living and working out of the closet. First up, let's meet Rabbi Denise Eager. Uh, Being a Jewish kid growing up in a city that had more churches than gas stations and a smaller Jewish community in the United States had its moments of challenge. I mean, I have vivid memories of the Ku Klux Klan, the far extreme racist marching down the main streets of Memphis on a Sunday afternoon in their white sheets, wearing white power. So, you know, those are really, that's still frightening, you know, even as a 12-year-old. Yeah. How do you think that growing up around that sort of influenced you as a rabbi? My rabbis, my teachers, the day after Dr. King was assassinated, Rabbi Wax led a march down to confront the mayor of our city and about what was happening. And and so it was really a model about of prophetic voices. I was very much influenced by him and uh, others who learn to speak truth to power and learn to challenge injustice. You know, that is what it partly influenced me in my work with the LGBTQ plus community um, to seek civil rights and, and equality and mm-hmm. use my prophetic voice in that way. Rabbi Eager leads Congregation Cole Army in West Hollywood. As I mentioned earlier, Rabbi Eager is one of the first lesbian rabbis to work openly in the United States and was the first queer president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which is the largest organization of rabbis in the world. She has been a force, not just within the Jewish community, but also within the wider LGBTQ plus community in the United States for over 30 years. She was ordained in 1988, and while female rabbis were accepted at the time, being queer was a different story. I asked Denise why, in spite of this, she decided to become a rabbi. I always felt a certain call, I guess, is the right way to frame it. My family was liberal, progressive. We belonged to a reform synagogue. I always was around people, but were connected and deeply involved in in synagogue life. And um, 
really it was as I was starting to think about college and I was a singer and a musician and originally thought I would be a cantor, which is the Jewish clergy person that sings and chants the prayers and teaches. But eventually I thought I would just be a rabbi who sings. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I have, I've been able to use music as part of my, you know, my, my rabbinate and, uh, and outreach as well. And uh, it's a deeply moving uh, profession, if you will, to be able to be with people in their, in their struggles and their joys and their hour of need, you know, with couples getting married and babies getting born and also, you know, people getting sick and getting old and being with them as they make their transition. So it's, it's a powerful way to spend one's life. Yeah. Because you led the first lesbian wedding in California, that's right? That is right. In 2008, there were uh, two couples that um, sued the state of California for equal marriage rights. The California courts ruled that that it was a discrimination to discriminate against gay and lesbian couples. And so uh, they issued a ruling that on June 17th, 2008, legal marriage for gay couples and lesbian couples would start. But Diane, the plaintiffs in the case, like Diane and Robin, were allowed to get married the day before. No. So on June 16th, 2008, I was able to, they were able to ma- obtain a marriage license and at, at five o'clock and right at 5.05, we were outside on the front steps of the Beverly Hills courthouse to officiate at their nuptials. For many people, it was the first time they had ever seen two people of the same gender to even imagine that they could be married. And, you know, there were lots of cameras and television crew and CNN and all of those there filming it. But, you know, and, and I think about the gay young people around the world who are fed so many terrible messages, often by religion, about who they are. And for them to see this hope that they might have their relationships not only affirmed, but to be able to legally protect your spouse and to care for them. And that, you know, that's a message of hope for, especially for young people. Look, the Bible's been used to bash a lot of people, not just queer people, not just LGBTQ people. Bible's been bashed women. You know, in Judaism, we really believe, and we base it theologically, if you will, on the idea from the book of Genesis that, that God created all humanity in God's image. It didn't say just straight people. <laughs> it didn't just say white people. It didn't say it says, you know, human beings were created in the divine image. And and that is a really powerful notion. To enjoy pleasure of the body, that is a gift from God. So as you heard, Rabbi Eger is a reformed Jew. Reform Judaism is a liberal branch that has modified or abandoned many traditional Jewish beliefs, laws, and practices in an effort to adapt Judaism to the changed social, political, and cultural conditions of the modern world. According to Rabbi Eger, it believes strongly in the equality of men and women in spiritual obligations. However, it's interesting that even within this contemporary denomination, which emerged in the 1800s in Germany, Queerness was still seen as taboo in the early 1990s. Rabbi Eger faced discrimination for her identity on multiple fronts, at various points in her life, first for her religion in her hometown, then from her religion in relation to her sexuality. However, much like our next guest, Imam Mushin Hendricks, this didn't shake her sense of religiosity. So I grew up in Cape Town, 
my forefathers are predominantly from Indonesian descent. Our forefathers were brought into the Cape as political prisoners and slaves. And so obviously they brought Islam to the Cape. So our influence, practicing of Islam is very Sufi influence. And the reason why I'm, I'm saying that is because uh, Sufi Islam seems to be sort of more embracing of, of sexuality, of sex and sexuality than any of the other mainstream theological sects. But at the same time, even though there was this, this liberalism, there was also a very strict upbringing, very conservative upbringing. The upbringing was, was Islamic. I was eating, drinking and sleeping Islam. As Imam Hendricks mentioned, he comes from a line of Sufism, which is a part of Islam that is defined by its relationship to mysticism. It's known for its asceticism or monkishness, and as Imam Hendricks alluded to, it contains elements of the erotic, so he always felt there was a queer aspect to his experience of Islam. Imam Hendricks still lives in Cape Town, where for more than 20 years he has supported queer people and queer Muslims. He has founded the Inner Circle, a group for LGBTQ plus Muslims, as well as an inclusive mosque, the People's Mosque. Imam Hendricks believes that homosexuality is not only compatible with Islam, but also integral to it. However, he faced many challenges within both his sexuality and his religion, growing up in Cape Town during apartheid. So I was born in June 1967, and it was still in a time uh, that apartheid was very much a practice in South Africa. And when I went to high school, that was when I started to uh, get involved in student politics to um, fight against apartheid because by then I could understand how oppressive the system was. Mm. How has that influenced your work as an imam? I heard about apartheid being um, anti-Islamic. My need to, to study Islam at a very early age was also influenced by the fact that I want to know what what this book is saying because deep down inside I as a queer person am also feeling a different kind of injustice um, you know sometimes we think growing up in apartheid is unfortunate or going through mm. you know certain difficulties is unfortunate but as you grow up you realize that those were necessary experiences because it was making you into something Adversity and discrimination have been a theme for each of these leaders. Both Rabbi Igar and Imam Hendricks face discrimination from both the outside world and within their faiths. In Denise's case, she grew up in a highly anti-Semitic environment and at the same time existed in a religion where her sexuality was not accepted. Imam Hendricks grew up in an environment where he was persecuted not only for the colour of his skin, but also for his religious beliefs. At the same time, coming out was unacceptable within his religiously conservative family. While our next guest, Minister Josephine Ipkin, grew up in more stable surrounds, there was no recognition or even understanding of her sexuality and identity within her religion or wider community. Well, I grew up in rural England in, in very much a backwater, and it was before either gay liberation or second wave feminist liberation. So things were were quite different in society and churches were in a different space as well with that. So my father was 
well, he was first generation at university and came out of rural poverty. And I think he was sort of quite protective. So we were quite restricted in a number of ways. But a major problem for me was as a as a transgender person is there was no language for gender diversity back then. I mean, there were some real pioneers, amazing people, mm. but really it was not even in the picture. And for a long, long time, a lot of queer um, language and, and space has been largely lesbian and gay, not even very bisexual, I would say. And trans was silent for so long. That's very different now. Minister Ipkin is Australia's first transgender priest to live and work openly in a mainstream church. She is Anglican, a major form of Christianity that includes features of both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. For me, God and church was actually a queer space. And it was a space in which, um, well, anything could happen. You know, wine, could, uh, wine and bread could be turned into extraordinary things, theoretically anyway, and all sorts of weird things. And this extraordinary character, Jesus, with lots and lots of women and, and all sorts of crazy things like angels and stuff. So it was a space where I could sort of feel there was some difference. Mm. You felt that from an early age, obviously, despite being in quite a protected environment. Yes, because, I mean, my faith tradition has, wasn't one that was very moralistic. I mean, I think we've in recent times there's been a real push to turn uh, Christianity particularly into some sort of moral code. But in my tradition, it was more sort of to do with beauty and mystery. And they're very, very queer. And, and I believe that a lot of faith tradition is queer. And, and in the secular world now, very, very secularist world, which wants to tell us we're consumers and clients and all the other things, Faith offers a different space that we're reimagining and dreaming and things. So alongside all the negativity that I think there's, for somebody who's trying to hang on, and there were a few other things that helped me, like football, and it's a little bit of a saviour. And women couldn't play back then. I mean, I was a bit of a row about sports now, but it was one space in which I could survive in the male world sort of thing. But beyond that, I think church was a space where, where it was possible, so within my gentle liberal Anglican tradition, also to be in the feminine because for a long while clergy was in, in at some stage would talk to as a third sex we move between different spaces and I think that for me is as a priest and I think I have an identity but I think if I was born in another culture I'd have been a priest anyway of some kind because we're in that liminal space between between worlds which I think is is very queer space actually each of these leaders experienced some element of queerness in their respective religions, while at the same time being closeted and feeling their identities were taboo. I wanted to know from these leaders, what kept their faith and sense of religiousness intact in light of their communities being seemingly against them, and what happened when they eventually came out? And so when did you first become a priest, what did your sort of journey look like? I mean, I went to university and all that sort of thing. And um, I had a sense of call, I think, in the end, and no flashing lights or voices, but sort of gradual realisation and a place in which to be myself and to rest with identity. I mean, I, I remember going to a conference when I was a student with a Jewish Christian thing, and, and a number of the rabbis talked about, sometimes I think a lot of priests and ministers are there uh, working out your own identity, and and I guess that's a spe- and I guess that is, has been part of my journey. But as I said earlier, I think it's a place in in the liberal Catholic Anglican tradition where queer people. There's always been a space for us, almost always, especially in the last two hundred years or whatever. It's more difficult now because 
the focus on us. But, you know, there are a lot of gay priests that I got, when especially was in London, um, and a lot of space for difference. You know, it was a sort of don't ask, don't tell sort of situation, which is not mm. entirely healthy. But it did mean that people had that space to be. I think I associate like my own queerness with, you know, with being seeking to be express things rather than to sort of repeat or to enforce things. And so where do you go? So for me, religion sort of is nearer to art. So it's sort of an art form. And so I'm, I'm not really a painter or a musician or anything like that, but I, I guess I paint with people, I suppose, and, and with community and with, with the things of God, of wisdom and truth and beauty. That's what I aspire to, I suppose. I found Minister Ipkin's views of the queerness within more liberal Anglicanism very interesting. Anglicanism was the first branch of Christianity to permit divorce, thanks to Henry VIII, and like Reformed Judaism, has made more attempts to move with modern ideas, as opposed to staying rigidly tied to scripture. As Minister Ipkin talked about how some aspects of gayness were closeted but present, I wondered how the church responded when it was confronted by a clergy member who wanted to live openly. Well, it's been quite a journey. I mean, I, I should have come out quite a long, long time ago. And if I'd stayed in England, I would have done. But we emigrated for children's health. And Australia is a much more conservative society, religiously speaking. And the churches have a lot more control, for example, over colleges and things. So there's there's less of a breadth than you would find, say, in America or or Britain in England. What's so back in 2000, just about when I was about to emigrate to Australia, the first two priests in the trans priests came out in the Church of England. And I mean, I remember the moment I, I found out about it, I was like transfixed, you know, I'm possible. Because that's one of the hard things. I mean, pioneers are amazing, but that you're visible and it's possible. Because as soon as I came out, see, not only did I have to face the gender question, that transgender question that the church in Australia hadn't faced, but also we then had to face the question that, well, are you lesbians now or something? Or, you know, our marriage, <laughs> sort of a model sort of heterosexual family from the outside. Now we're the reprobates. Yeah. So that, that was a big, big challenge. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I... I thought I might lose everything, you know, because she found out about my gender identity shortly after we were married. We didn't sort of hide. And as always felt that I was a lot happier once I was able to express that and was quite mm. sad. Where's Josephine gone? She said for a long while and could see yeah. the damage it was doing to me because I was getting angry, depressed. And yeah. So when I came out, it was tricky. It was tricky because I was a pioneer. I really didn't know what was to happen. And after after a few weeks, I thought, I think I'm going to survive here because they didn't come after me. I mean, I talked to with people in the church and, and I, you know, although they're struggling a little bit, still the Anglican Church in Australia, I have to say the bishops pastorally up in Brisbane were very supportive to me on a pastoral level. And they didn't want to sort of lose my gifts or pennies gifts. Um, but they were also conscious that, you know, other people in the church might make it difficult. Mm. You know, there are two other trans priests now in Australia, and that makes a bit of a difference to me because I did feel very exposed. And it is quite exhausting because as a visible trans person in the faith community, there aren't many of us. And so I get huge numbers of people contacting me all kinds of different ways. But it's so liberating. I suppose that's the other side. It is to be who you are is just incredible, wonderful. I asked Rabbi Eager about her experience of coming out and of her early days as a rabbi. It's a really interesting story. I mean, I have known since I'm a child that I was different and 
I guess I was a classic tomboy, you know, played with the cars and liked to play sports. You know, the girls were not encouraged in the 60s to play sports. I remember, you know, I read the word lesbian in a book in the age of 12. And I said, oh, that's me. Hmm. That's me. So, you know, I spent my teenage years trying to suppress it and fight it and went off to college and knew I wanted to be a rabbi. And, you know, it wasn't okay to be a rabbi and to be gay in those years. I entered rabbinical school 10 years after the first woman was ordained. Yeah. So we knew that women could be, but it was still against the rules. If they found out you were gay, you were kicked out. I did not have a job at ordination. I was not called to a pulpit at the moment of ordination, like all my classmates, because it's kind of an open secret. So it, it took me another month or so, but the first job that I was offered was at a LGBT congregation. Mm. Their rabbi had left, so they knew I was coming back to the West Coast and offered me a position in the height of the AIDS crisis. So here I am already a rabbi in 1988. It's the AIDS crisis. People are dying left and right. And this committee is still debating about can gay people be, openly gay people be admitted to the rabbinical cemetery. Everybody was so petrified. There has to be a face and a name to humanize the whole thing. And and I was already working in an LGBTQ synagogue who I've been told I should never take the job because I'd never work again. Um, so, so I did an interview in the LA Times with the then religion editor, and we put a fate, my face and name to the story. And, and it's harder to say no to people you know. So there were rabbis that knew me. I'd already been out in the field a couple years. Um, it gave courage to some of our other, my other rabbis who were deeply closeted. So, and at that convention in 1990, the rules were changed. Speaking to Denise and Josephine, it struck me how both described an underlying don't ask, don't tell policy within their faiths. It also struck me that neither Denise or Josephine felt rejected by the fundamental belief systems of their religions, but more so by the people from within their communities. Here you start to see the discrepancies between what these women experienced in their own individual sense of religiosity and what their institutions deemed acceptable. So, what motivated these individuals to stay involved in their communities in light of the discrimination? I was so involved, I guess, as a youth, as a teenager in our synagogue and our youth groups, and we have uh, Jewish summer camps, you know, and I was always there every summer. I didn't feel like God was angry at me. Maybe other people were. But I also felt I had purpose. You know, I'm very blessed because I had really loving, caring parents. And I know many people who have parents who have condemned them or thrown them out of the house. You know, it makes it makes it much harder, especially when you come from a very harsh fundamentalist background. And I I do understand not wanting to come back to a place to be re-traumatized every time. But that wasn't my experience of my faith. It was not traumatic that way. It was a place of comfort and safety, uh, a place of beauty, a place of strength. And and my faith gave me strength. My, My traditions gave me strength to face challenges. And so I always kind of thought it was, well, it was the world. It wasn't God that was the problem. <laughs> um, I know that that strength, um, which I, I still believe today, I think has helped made a difference for others. Mm. Because 
one of, one of the things I've been able to teach and able to raise through the years is um, for people to learn to love themselves and to live lives where they don't have to compartmentalize any part of them. Yeah. You should be able to be all of who you are. Here, I think we start to observe the potency of belief systems. Both women have described a deep affinity and even calling to their faith and their work within it. It's part of them, but it's also bigger than them. For both, they saw questioning of their identity not as a reflection of their religions or God, but as a reflection on the individuals who are questioning them. Both of these women possess a strong sense of identity and affinity with their beliefs. I also think the role family support plays here can't be underestimated. Both women had loving parents and strong support networks. So considering Imam Hendricks took greater issue with his parents' conception of Sufi Islam and felt less accepted in his household, I wanted to know more about what kept him grounded in his faith as he was coming out. Where my activism really started is when I got divorced at 29 came out of the closet in the same year after having been in seclusion for about three months. Within that three months, it was a cathartic experience about my perception of who I am in in the bigger scheme of things, how Islam fits into that and how my sexual orientation fits into that. So I'm okay with this now. So I don't care what the world thinks about me. The only person I was fearing at the time was my mother. Mm. And how am I going to come out to her? But in any case, after a 80 days of fasting within that three-month period of seclusion, I just felt that I was ready to, to take on new life. Because for me, being authentic about who I was, was more important and more pressing for me than living this double life and being accepted within my community. So I went to the newspapers and I said, look, this is my story. I'm, I'm, I'm a queer imam and I'm coming out. It was front page. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and, and I put my, my, my helpline number in this paper and I said to them, just please put the helpline paper the number there because I know there's a lot of people that would want to call me after this. 80% of those calls were all positive calls. Yeah. Yeah. It was either from other queer Muslims who were thanking me for you know being brave enough to do this, or mothers who were saying that they suspect their sons are gay, women who were saying that they're suspecting their husbands are gay, and even two imams who also admitted that they're working for the Muslim Judicial Council, but they they are also queer and could not be able to do what I, I am doing. Mm. And I think that gave me a lot of courage to to continue with what I'm doing. And I felt that I was I was on the right path. Mm-hmm. So then only I ventured out to go and find uh, other queer Muslims. Up to that point, I was just stuck in a, in a heterosexual marriage. Um, I wasn't really, you know, mixing with other queer people. Yeah. And when I met with them, I was quite surprised how they were negotiating this dilemma between their sexual orientation and gender identity. And it was in ways that were harmful to them on drugs because they just want to numb the pain of not being accepted or they would be um, 
having casual sex without you know being responsible about it because they need a quick fix for the love that they're looking for and some people having left islam because they they felt that if islam wasn't embracing them that they're not going to embrace it so when i hear these stories i felt that it this is where i need to do my work because every time when i ask them so well, how do you understand that Islam does not accept you as a queer person? And they will say, well, they heard this and they heard that. And I would rectify them and say, but this is not what the Quran is saying. And this is not what the Hadith is saying. Mm. And uh, slowly but surely, I found that I opened my garage in, at my house and I made it into a prayer room. And on Thursday nights, people would come to my house and we would just sit and we would just talk about our, our narratives. And it grew from six in the beginning to about 30 people, you know, after the year. And this is where one of my uh, current uh, donors at the time was uh, finding out about the work that I was doing. Mm. And they offered me funding and said, look, why don't you formalize your work? And we will, we will support you, you know, with set up funds and whatever. So in 2006, I started this uh, organization called uh, Al Fitra Foundation, and it was mm -hmm. purely an organization to help queer Muslims to reconcile their faith with their sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm. From there, just mushroom because I I was contacted by a uh, film company, Halal Films, to do a documentary on my life. It was called A Jihad for Love. I was branded as out of the fold of Islam because I was promoting homosexuality. And, um, and, the, and the evening when this documentary was screened at, at the waterfront, the Muslim Judicial Council uh, purchased half of the tickets in, in, of the cinema just so that people sh should not go and watch this documentary. But it just created so much of curiosity and and the, that night of the opening, the cinema was jam-packed. People were even standing at the back to, to watch this. And the overwhelming amount of support that I have received, uh, it just encouraged me to say, look, this is your calling and this is what you need to do. What do you think was the, the strength that kept you feeling connected to God at a time when you potentially would have been questioning your relationship based on what you had experienced? I think it's very similar for me. I, I never had an issue with God. I think the community had an issue with me. I never thought that God was homophobic. There was always this voice speaking to me and I interpreted that, that as, as, as the divine. And it was always welcoming, compassionate, forgiving kind of a presence that I felt. Imam Hendricks was able to find a support network of like-minded people by coming out. Despite not having familial support, he still experienced the same overwhelming feeling that Minister Ipkin and Rabbi Eager felt. It wasn't God that had the problem with their being gay and trans. It was the people within their communities that did. In light of this, I wanted to know more about the belief systems of our guests and what particular aspects of their religion appealed to them as queer people. Why do they worship what they worship? I asked Imam Hendricks to share more about what being a Muslim means for him. So Sufism is basically just the mystical uh, part of Islam and it's sort of more emphasising 
the personal relationship between between the lover and the beloved. So that was pretty much part of my upbringing because of my father's influence. My grandfather and my mother, uh, they were from the uh, Shafi school of thought. So now that I am much older and I understand Islam, I understand how these sects were formed and you know the political uh, impetus behind it and the the influence of the you know personalities and you know of classical scholars and so on that i came to understand myself as just being muslim and mm. and being muslim for me is about i mean the word muslim comes from salama meaning peace so it's one who adheres to peace um one who surrenders his will to to god and for me that's enough you know and uh, because my my community has somewhat ostracized me, I had to find a place for myself. And that personal relationship with God and my strength that I also had from my Sufi upbringing was sustaining me. That became my Islam. Given Imam Hendricks has worked hard to conceive of his religiosity on his own terms, I wanted to know what aspects of Islam he draws from when thinking about sexual orientation. Are there any Islamic stories that talk about sex or sexuality? Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, the Quran is actually silent about sexual orientation. Um, yeah. And uh, I think one of the things we need to understand the Quran, uh, about the Quran is that the Quran was a book that was revealed based on the situation that Muhammad, peace be upon him, found himself in. So whenever he needed guidance on a particular social issue, a verse yeah. would be revealed to him. So nobody ever bothered to ask about homosexuality, although it was, it was prevalent in that society. It seemed to have been a non-issue. It's, it's like the do and don't tell kind of thing. You know? And <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you find it a lot in Muslim countries today also, although some of these countries are really strict in terms of you know, the penal codes. People are still having clandestine, you know, male-to-male relationships in those countries. Yeah, yeah. So what I can tell you is about some personalities, very important personalities in our Islamic history that have had uh, same-sex relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the famous poet Abu Nawaz in the 9th century. This is about 150 to 200 years after the Prophet passed away in the time when Hadith was compiled, the sayings of the mm -hmm. Prophet. Yeah. And he lived in that period and he had a love relationship with the son of a very fierce Khalif, Harun al-Rashid. His name was uh, Muhammad al-Amin. And so there's a lot of stories about them and their love relationship and, and how uh, Muhammad al-Amin's mother used to try and lure him away from being attracted to men by inviting young girls to, to a banquet and then dress them up like boys just to lure him away from, <laughs> from his attractions. And then Abu Nawaz found this very funny, and he actually wrote poetry about this called the, uh, yeah. you know, the Hulamiyat. So that's one story. Then we look at India. Um, one of the Sufi saints in India, um, Shah Hussein Lal, was madly in love with a Hindu boy, boy called Madhu. 
and uh, he was so mesmerized by this boy that they had this lovely relationship to the point where when they died today in lahore the shrine is still existing and both of them are buried in the same grave then there are also uh, rumi and shams the famous uh, poem poet rumi and often you know people are apologetic about his love relationship with shams saying that oh it was an esoteric relationship he standard <laughs> but the kind of things that he would say to shams and you know as a gay person you can you can identify with those kind of things so obviously rumi didn't speak much about his his, his sexual encounters but um mm. neither would i do it publicly <laughs> again here we're hearing of the don't ask don't tell mentality the idea that queerness particularly in more ancient history was tolerated but not openly celebrated is a very different narrative than the one of religious oppression that secular westerners have become accustomed to. In honesty, my gut reaction was to wonder if this was our religious leaders clutching at straws. I wanted to know more from Imam Hendricks about his version of Islam. Interestingly enough, because Sufism focuses more on the soul, that the soul doesn't have a gender and our identity is is it's all constructed identities then yeah? mm. it, it has no no consequence to the soul when the soul moves on to the next um, realm mm. and so when you when you're in love with with a person from the same sex if that love is spiritual and you are connecting to a soul it's irrelevant whether the soul is male or female or whatever mm, mm. You obviously talk a lot about um sort of a compassionate reading of the Quran. Can you explain what you mean by that and how you sort of teach that to people to reframe their reading of it? So there's 114 surahs or chapters in the Quran. And 113 of those surahs starts with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. In the name of God, the indiscriminately compassionate, the infinitely merciful. So then you ask yourself why does God mention that every time before he starts a revelation as if he's reminding us that the lens through which you have to interpret this book is mercy and compassion then in another verse in the Quran it says wanunazzilu min al-qur'ani ma huwa shifa wa rahmatul lil-mu'minin and we have revealed in this book that which is a healing and a mercy for the believers so there's another lens that when whatever we interpret from this book has to lead to healing and has to lead to mercy and i often question where is the mercy and the healing for the lgbti community when we make translations that are completely mm. insensitive and exclusive mm. Mm. so god in his essence is is just compassion the word rahman which means merciful is so often repeated in the quran so i cannot help but highlighting that that's the god that i understand the version of islam that imam hendrix is presenting here is vastly different to mainstream ideas of what islam represents this raises an important question around how religion can become coercive you know you've you've touched on this quite a bit already about the relationship between power and religion and how 
religion is often co-opted as a means to exert power over other individuals. What do you think your experience with Islam can teach us about exactly that? Yeah, so I mean, I think that patriarchy is an inexpungible part of Islam or the, mm. the, the construction of an Islamic identity. It stems right from our understanding of God and all his male qualities. We even refer to God as he and not mm. she. All the prophets that's mentioned in the Quran, all 25 of them are males and they are considered as prophets because of particular qualities that they had. But when we look mm. at Mother Mary and we look at Hajar, the slave wife of Abram, they had all those qualities. They also had intervention by angels and so on. So how come they were not considered as prophets simply just because they were women? So it seems like the feminine has always been downplayed within you know, the construction of religion to keep it male-centered and to keep patriarchy alive. Here, Imam Hendricks is picking up on the manipulation that can arise in how gender and gender roles are presented, depending on who you're talking to. This brings to the fore that an all-encompassing capital T truth might not exist. It certainly doesn't seem to. I asked Minister Ipkin to share more about her Anglican beliefs to see if a similar division exists within Christianity. I suppose my theology would be associated with the sort of uh, the Christian wisdom, the mystical tradition, which is also to do, but what reason is a, a major thing throughout that space, both in the Catholic and Anglican traditions, I think, which takes seriously the Bible as a record of faith, but 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 doesn't overprivilege it, I suppose, and, and use it as a sort of constitution, which is what's happening today. That leads in really well to start talking a bit about sort of biblical stories and whether there are biblical stories that depict queer relationships or queerness in general. <laughs> Take it away. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of famous stories. David and Jonathan is one of the most strong. And the word that's used for the love between David and Jonathan, as I understand it, and from, you know, from Jewish scholars as well, is one that's used for God, for God's love, for God's people and for God's land. From a trans point of view, there are hordes of, I mean, sometimes people talk about eunuchs as, as our transcestors. In the early world, that we, don't, we seem to have lost in Western culture, that actually there is this diversity in that intersex people, trans people, they were partly to do with people who wanted to commit themselves to virginity and stuff, but, but people who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And I think that's people like me, you know, who went, who've gone through surgeries and things for the sake of the kingdom of God, which means peace, love, joy, all those things. And it doesn't mean to say that we'll be able to reclaim a lot of the horrendous stories in the Bible because it is, it is produced in a patriarchal context and mm. a lot of it quite grim as well, horrible stories, but, but there's lots mm. of life there. So according to Rabbi Eager, what does the Torah say about sex? 
we have a whole cha- whole book of the Bible that is filled with sex and sexual innuendo, and that's called Song of Songs, the famous story of King David who saw Bathsheba across the way bathing on the rooftop, and her husband was David's general, and he sent the general away so he could sleep with Bathsheba. You know, I mean, there's stories of illicit sex and sexuality and erotic behaviors because it's a Bible is a book of human human stories. Yeah, okay, it's about God, but it's also stories about people and their real lives. There's a lot of stories about King David as being a bisexual man. I mean, he marries women, but he also has this longing for Jonathan, the son of his nemesis, King Saul, right? Jonathan, he's, when Jonathan dies, he David writes a lament. Your love is sweeter to me than the love of women. Some biblical scholars from the Victorian era tried to cover that up and say, oh, it was just platonic friendship. Who talks like that? Your love was sweeter to me than the love of women. Is that how you talk? I mean, like we have gotten in 20th century, really actually stemming. I I think a lot of this comes from kind of Victorian ideas of sex and sexuality. And that and that really, I think, screwed up Western society, to be really honest. You know, there was such a binary from that time, right? It's male and female, you know. But the truth is, is that, you know, in, especially in, in, in North America, uh, Native culture, Indigenous culture, they've always recognized two-spirit people. That those are people that are non-binary people that, you know, and are, those were often shamans in, in, in Indigenous North American religions. And in, in the Talmud, they recognized that not all people fit in one side or the other. And it's ironic because that's some of the early studies about human sexuality, the Kinsey studies, told us that the human sexuality was on a spectrum. And lo and behold, we could go back to the Talmud from the, you know, from the year 300 and 400 and see that the rabbis also recognized that there were people who were male, people who were female, people who were hermaphrodites, people who were agender, people who were transgender. And so this, I think, is a important reminder that not everybody fits into a nice square box. I mean, it's interesting because it's almost like there's a return to the texts (laughs) as they were sort of interpreted at an earlier stage. What do you teach your congregation about sexuality? I teach them to be responsible, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, I I don't want your listeners to get the the impression that Judaism is just a sexual free-for-all. That's not what I, you know, I'm trying to make the point that it's sex positive, not sex negative. But I also think that there are responsibilities that go along with a healthy sexual, healthy section expression of sexuality. And that's care and concern for the, your partner, respect and honor, mutuality and consensuality to not engage in abusive behaviors uh, physically or emotionally. And so, you know, we try to teach people to make those distinctions. When is something, when is something crossing the board line? Um, How do you take responsibility for your own pleasure? (laughs) Which is, which, you know, people have been shamed forever for self-satisfaction. There's no reason Mm -hmm. to be shamed for, you know, enjoying the pleasure of one's body. I think, you know, I think it's about a healthy sexuality, healthy expression, still does believe in relationship. Uh, I want to say that. And how we conduct our relationships with the other person uh, is really important. It's really important. Mm. With all of the um, 
leaders that we're going to be speaking to as, as part of this episode, in, including yourself, this is often the conclusion that is drawn. There's wildly different sort of approaches and methods to getting to that point. But I do feel like that's kind of the the unifying force, right, across these different religions and denominations and secularism as well, is that, you know, people deserve to be respected as human beings. It seems like a pretty basic concept to me. <laughs> well, I think that's true in Eastern religions too. I mean, I think we could talk, yeah. you know, if you talk, read the works of the Dalai Lama, you know, you have to come to self-acceptance before you can begin to love others, right? And to love others, you have to see them in that same human light. I think it's it spans just not even Western, but Eastern philosophies as well. So very recently, I'll tell you something funny about me. Very recently, I started a TikTok channel and I do Bollywood songs because I grew up with Bollywood also, so I love Bollywood. And, I, and my mother, she also loved singing, so I love singing as well. And um, and people would ask me like, but as an imam, is this like the appropriate thing to do, you know? And I'm like, I chose at some point to be an imam for a particular cause. And I think if I've done myself in terms of creating structures and, and, and literature to help people to reconcile their faith with their sexual orientation and gender identity, but that's not all who I am. I always say that I'm a multiplicity of complexities and a vast ocean of possibilities. Why would you want to just put me in one <laughs> this thing? So, so right now, I think that uh, I just want to to be myself, enjoy other aspects of who I am. I think that's part of the challenge for queer people is that. It's how we relate to, and it, and it happens in Australia as, as well, is that we are still quite white. You know, how we engage with the fact there are lots of gay and trans people in Western Sydney, for example, but but they're not able to engage. And partly it's because a lot of our culture is very individualist. And so if you come from a more communal culture, you've got to relate to that. So I think the queer, if queer people are to advance, and then there's a growing realisation that we need to you know, grapple with questions of faith and enable faith, people of faith who are queer to be visible and to, you know, work out to help. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex and a big thank you to all of our guests. You can find us on Instagram at becoming.me, becoming is spelt with a U. There's also lots more info and links to further reading in the show notes. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fitcho, my co-producer and audio editor, who also wrote the music for the show. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please leave us a review and subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 